As you well know, we've been um, looking in a message series this semester we've entitled The Pursuit of Fullness. Um, when we feel as if certain aspects of our being and our self-awareness, our identity, our, our communal self-understanding is questioned and changed in trying times, it's worth coming back and listening again to who it is that God says we are. This is sort of an identity reclamation process, to look at the various facets of who we are and let God into each one of them as we sort of slow down in the wheel of looking at um, who we are in our physicality, in our spirituality, in our sexuality, and what better time to do that than during the season of Lent. Ten years ago, nobody in the world would have ever known what the term social media influencer meant, and yet we've all been influenced by different people along the way. Spiritual influencers have um, a contagious hunger for an ever-increasing capacity to reflect more of Christ in their lives. And doing this job now for over a decade, it's been an absolute joy to see different students come through Dort at phases and realize the influence that they're already learning to have to flavor the world around them. You know those people that you encounter in life where you're just sort of like, the Jesus is strong with this one. There's a sense of they've spent time in, in God's presence and they're bringing it back for the rest of us. Um, I knew Gail Ashmore well as a student at Dort. And after graduation, living in a couple of different states, getting married to Sam Ashmore, having a couple of sons, now back um, to be back on campus and on staff, leading us in pastoral care um, with segments of our student population, planning events, um, and being able to exercise that influence in a new way. Friends, the Jesus is strong with this one. And um, Gail, we are delighted to hear from you today. Will you please come up and share a message and your thoughts and reflections with us? Yes, it is such an honor to be present with you this morning, this cold and frigid morning. I think that winter is here. I always have this like phase. I have several phases of winter, and I have just exited the phase of denial, and I am now sifting into the phase of just acknowledging that it exists. Um, so this is me doing that, and thank you for making your way here to chapel. As we've heard Ryan and Aaron say, this is a special day. Today marks Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, and it's a season that's marked by repentance and fasting and reflection and ultimately celebration in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has significant implications for our bodies as well. Now what I pray that you've heard intertwined in this series thus far is that our flourishing here on earth does not have to do with our activity. It has to do with God's activity. This is not a message of self-sufficiency, but it's a message of Christ-sufficiency. And our flourishing doesn't have to do with the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God here on earth. And Lent gives us this invitation to participate in his presence. We've talked about this series called In Pursuit of Fullness, 
And we've looked at how do we pursue the fullness of God through our relationships, through social settings. We've looked at it through our intellect and our emotions. And today, we are going to look at how does my physical body live into the fullness of God, and what does that mean? My prayer as we begin Lent is that we accept this invitation to submit our bodies over to the redemptive work of Christ. I believe this message is particularly important right now. It has more weight, because if 2020 and 2021 has been anything, it's been a reminder of our human frailty. We've had new limitations in our body. We've had new frustrations in our bodies come about this year. I don't know if you're living in that tension, but it reminds me a lot of what I witness every day with my two sons. Their names are Zion and Judah, and they're scrumptious, aren't they? I really love them. Um, Judah is the one-year-old. He's a fiery kid. And Zion is my three-year-old. He's sensitive and sweet. And the thing about these two is that when they're playing together, it's quite fascinating. And if you've ever seen young children in the dead of winter, you will sympathize with me. Because Zion is this creature right now who's just like stuck in his body and he has to do things constantly. And so as he jumps from the floor to the bed, to the crib, to the pantry, to the washing machine, whatever have you, it's interesting as I watch Judah that he has this constant reminder of what his body is not able to do yet. And so he sees Zion learn how to ride the bike and poor sweet Judah, his legs and his body doesn't quite have the strength and coordination to do what Zion can do yet. And he has this frustration within himself. And many people throughout scripture demonstrate their cries and their body's limitations. We read of Sarah's barrenness how deeply she saddened she is by it. We hear the psalmist say, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Or perhaps the most relatable one is Paul. All throughout letters, he talks about this day-to-day struggle that he has with his flesh. In Romans 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And this transitions us into the text today that when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, our our passage is 1 Corinthians 6, and he's writing to this culture that is engaged in this dualistic view of the body, that somehow the body doesn't have any significance, that we must focus only on the soul and reject the body, reject the things of the physical material of this world. And they were engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality and participating in sins that Paul says was against their own body. Paul kind of quotes them when he says that they were saying, I have the right to do anything with my body, that everything is permissible for me giving them this taste, this sense of this false freedom, that if I can say yes to anything with my body, then I must be free. 
But Paul responds by saying, I will not be mastered by anything. Giving us this image of being mastered by something. And in Romans 6, Paul kind of apologizes for the imagery, but he says, I have no other way to tell you you are a slave to sin. What benefit did you reap at the time of the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. It gives us this picture that whatever we give our physical bodies over to will eventually have authority over us. It will become our master. And perhaps the problem in the text was that they were under the grace of God. They had heard the gospel. They knew they were justified with Jesus Christ, but they were not engaging their bodies with the redemptive work. I wonder if we're living in the same reality that we can engage the idea of grace with our intellect or that we can even try to engage it with our emotions but we feel that our body is being held back, that it's somehow enslaved, that it can't move and like perhaps like my son Judah, you feel that you're just limited. You're frustrated. You see what freedom in Christ could look like but you feel held back. Lately, we've been reminded more of human frailty than ever. We've witnessed what new illnesses and diseases can do to the body. We've witnessed what anxiety can do, infiltrating our entire being, giving us actual physical agony. Or maybe it's shame. This narrative that your identity is somehow attached to your sin or what you do, good or bad. It hijacks your brain and then it starts to pour into your posture and how you see yourself. Maybe you feel that your body is under the authority of lust and a dictator of personal pleasure and sin. Or maybe the world's expectations of what a perfect body needs to look like has us feeling more comfortable with hate towards our own bodies than God's compassion. My prayer today is that we don't just stay in this frustration, but we begin to join God in the restorative plan for his dwelling place. And Paul first talks about this is not a message of shame. It's not a message of shame because he first addresses their activity and their sin, but then he moves them into God's activity, into God's involvement and participation of setting them free and removing their shame and removing the consequences of sin. It says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Do you not know the preciousness and significant and plans and purpose that I have for your body? I think before we can understand ourselves and how we fit into his plans of restoring his dwelling place, we need to look at scripture and how this story of the temple moves from the Old Testament to the New Testament to this present day. And so we're going to do a brief look at the narrative of scripture and how the temple fits and how you fit 
I'm gonna tell you it like a story, and I ask that you would just engage yourself. You would engage all of your senses and your whole being into this story. It starts with the Garden of Eden, the place where God dwells with man, and N.T. Wright calls it this. The creation account in Genesis 1 is God's very intentional, very careful setting up of the holy temple in Eden, a place into which God intended to move with his divine presence so that he could then also live side by side with the human beings who bore his very image. Man and woman were created to enjoy unclouded communion and fellowship with God, and at the core of our very being is to dwell with him, to be united with him. And there was no need for a temple structure in the garden because there were no sins to atone for. But we see now that even the garden was vulnerable to sin and deceit and God's dwelling place was fractured. In the fall, Genesis 3, the communion was broken. But I want you to know that since that day, God has been restoring his temple. We look in Exodus 25 in the tabernacle that God told Moses to build this tent for him. And what I love, what I find fascinating about this story is that the Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years. And so God had made appearances with man, but he hadn't continually dwelled with them since the garden. And so they were essentially separated from their identity. And we hear that he told Moses to build this tabernacle, and it literally means tent dwelling, emphasizing the nearness and the closeness of God's presence, dwelling with the Israelites in the midst of their camp. And they were to tend to it as if they were back in the garden. And then as we move into the story, we have 1 Kings 6, when Solomon was instructed to build a temple that was fashioned similarly to the tabernacle in the garden. And in Isaiah 56, we hear that it's a house of prayer for all nations, manifesting love and care for God's people So any culture and any people group could come from all over the world and dwell with God, be one with God, be invited into their identity of who they're supposed to be to have constant, continual fellowship with him. But once again, in Malachi 1, we learn that people had given themselves over to slavery and bondage of sin and God's way of communicating with, communing with them was again destroyed. But God promises to restore Israel and to pour his spirit on them. I hope you begin to hear yourself in the themes of the temple of where you fit. It says this, we learn that it was God coming down and meeting with his people. It was a place where sin and bondage was atoned for and it held the holy of holies, the most precious place, carrying the weight and the heaviness of his glory. Do you see yourself in this picture yet? Because the one who made it possible, Jesus, is the next phase of the temple. We're invited to be involved because of Jesus, and it says that God came and he dwelt among them through his son, 
In John 1.14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among them. And you can also read that the word became flesh and tented or tabernacled among them. Thus indicating that Jesus fulfills God's ultimate goal and purposes of the temple. So we are the next phase of the temple. You, your physical body. I just recently, um, last year, had the joy of watching the glorious two plus hours that is The Greatest Showman. I love that movie so much, it is spectacular. In fact, one of my goals of this year is to get my family to learn the dances with me. And I think that 50 to 75% of them aren't excited, and 25% of us are excited. So um, ask me if that happens. Um, You can campaign for it in campus ministry's offices if you want. Um, But what I love about this movie, it's, it's about this man who even at the age of 12 started to practice his love for showmanship. So he starts selling these lottery tickets. He's 12 years old. And it's just this story of him indulging his talents and his passions. And he creates this show called the Barnum and Bailey Circus. But we see the trajectory of the plot turn when he gets swept up in fame and success and popularity and it somehow has this like hold, this tight grip on him and he can't let go and he eventually loses everything. But I think the most important scene of the entire movie is at the end when he's in this restaurant, he's lost everything, his family has gone and he's alone but you see this shift in his posture because he realizes what it was all for. It was all to dwell and be with his wife and his family. That his first joy and passion and belonging was to dwell and engage and participate with his wife. And I'm here to tell you today that we will not be home in our physical bodies until we are living out our first purpose, which is to dwell with God, which is to be united with him and house his presence. It says that you are a temple. Paul calls you a temple, and that word temple there, it's not describing the temple as a whole. It's describing the inner sanctuary, the most precious place, the holy of holies, where God's presence is held. And we know that God doesn't need a temple or a tent or a body to dwell with us, yet he chooses. He chooses to dwell, to meet us exactly where you are in this place, meeting you. And the extraordinary comes and it dwells inside the ordinary. You see, there's no reaching for perfection in this body because perfection became a person and that person became personal and he died and he resurrected so that his spirit can live inside of you. And just as God gave specific instructions and intentional details and the creation of his temple, so he fashioned you with the same kind of tender care and purpose. Psalm 139, wonderful are your works. My body knows it well. 
Wonderful are your works. My body will proclaim it well. And suddenly we see that his dwelling place is not some golden throne room bathed in sunlight. It's the tired-looking tent in the desert wasteland. It's the carpenter from a small town. It's the farmer across the street. It's the college student heading from band practice to the dorm room to the commons. It's your professor, it's your mom, it's you and it's me, it's us, it's his church. That's what this is about. And all of a sudden, people don't have to travel all over the world to dwell with God, but his presence is made known through our physical bodies. That's what this is about. Our identity is to dwell with him first, to engage him first, to participate in his activity first, and then we engage the world. And then we go into our dorm rooms. And then we go to class. And that next section, it says that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is where we see God's divine involvement. Paul says, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So if you are in Christ, then you have the Spirit of God inside of you. You have an advocate declaring you not guilty before the Father, You have a helper in the midst of your temptations. You have a power among your enemies. But he also discerns truth for us on our behalf. You see, I know that as you go out into the world and as you engage, you are fed and you are encountering a lot of confusing lies and things don't seem right or black and white anymore and you're trying to sift through this that's why we need a spirit to teach us what truth is on our behalf and first corinthians 2 verse 12 it says what we have received is not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from god so that we may understand what god has freely given us what this is teaching us is that the world cannot fathom the death and resurrection of jesus christ You will not find the message of the cross in your social media accounts or in your Netflix accounts. It can't fathom it because the world tells you it's everything's permissible. The matters of the world will tell you that it's about your performance. Do, earn, meet expectations, fulfill your desires, seek pleasures, what feels good to you. But this leaves us anxious, under the authority of sin, weakened and afraid. But when we are united with his spirit, he ministers the work of the cross, and we see that the need for atonement with God has been fulfilled through Jesus, that it's about his performance, the expectation, the work has been done on our behalf and has come personally to us. And like my son Judah, instead of longing for righteousness, instead of longing for freedom and perfection, that we can see that it abides in me through his resurrection, that we're transformed by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, you were bought with a price. We are not our own. 
And just like the Israelites, God did not leave us alone in our bondage, separated from our identity from him. He didn't leave us there. But now we live under his authority. We are his possession. We live under his lordship. Paul says, cleave to Christ. Be so attached to him that he is the head and you are the body. Thus indicating that whatever you do in your bodies is out of the overflow of your attachment with Christ. Do not hand your rights over to sin, thus quenching the spirit. But give yourself over to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Live into your true identity to dwell in fellowship with him first as a temple of God because he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So maybe this Lent season, instead of pushing against our limitations, instead of trying to fix our limitations, we see them as a way to partner with the death of Jesus first so that his resurrection life can then dwell within me so then my body, it's not nourished by death, but life. It doesn't house bondage, it houses freedom. It's not a temple of anxiety or shame, but love and joy and peace. Not division and comparison and hate, but patience and kindness and goodness. And not sin or immorality, but faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So where do we begin in all of this? How do we start living out our identity as a temple, as a dwelling place of God? Well, Paul tells us that one day, by his power, just as God raised the Lord from the dead, he is going to raise this body. Your body will be raised also. And one day, in Revelation 21, we're going to dwell with God again, with no need for a temple. Yet this time, No sin can defile it. It'll be finished. But until then, we need to be vigilant, knowing that we have an enemy wanting to defile the temple again, wanting to defile God's dwelling place again, which is you. So just as Adam and Eve needed to tend to the garden And just as the priests had to tend to the temple, so we must tend to our bodies. And in Ephesians, it says, for no one hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it, and he cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And we don't cherish it out of idolatry or self-esteem. We cherish it out of the compassion of Christ, so that we can live into our identity as a temple. One way to see it, if anybody has ever learned how to use an instrument, um, which I have not since the fifth grade, but I can probably imagine what it's like, that first you need to learn the rules, that you've gotta learn the notes and the movements 
But once you practice the notes and the movements and the rules enough, then you begin to flow with the music. And that it becomes a part of you. And you don't have to think about the rules anymore. And I'm wondering if this Lenten season, that as we die to ourselves and as we die to our sins, we can start participating in rhythms that help us engage and participate in the presence of God. So maybe, just maybe, it's not about diet plans and exercise plans, which they have their place, but instead, whatever it is that we do eat, whatever it is that we do with our body, we're practicing the presence of God. And so as a campus ministries team, we want to invite you to do this with us in the Lent season. And I'm confident that you received something as you came in, inviting you to these sessions, these worship sessions, and other things where you can come and participate in God's presence and dwell with him first. You will also be seeing an email about that, but tonight there's also an event for the women in the room. It's called Lifted, and it's going to be in 1606 at 7 o'clock, and we're just going to invite you and come worship with us. And we're going to have some women speaking truth over you so that you can begin to believe that you are a temple of God and that his presence was made to dwell in and through you. We are going to respond with the song. It's called Temple. And my prayer is that as you worship in your response, I'm gonna invite you to do something that might feel uncomfortable, that as you sing it and as the words are sung over you, that you would at some point in the song place your hands on your body. Letting it be a blessing over you. Letting the truth speak into who you are in Christ that he rose, he died and he rose again so that you may not stay in your bondage, you may not stay in a body of death, but you may have the spirit of life who is in you. And so as we sing this song, just let these words speak into who you are as God's child, that you were chosen to be his dwelling place. Go into your classrooms, into your dorm rooms today, knowing that you are a temple, that his presence may be known and through you. Go in peace.